You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. With album titles like My Life, No More Drama, and Stronger With Each Tear, Mary J. Blige's music reads like an autobiography chronicling her pain and her joy. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Mary J. Blige talks about the new British chapter in her life. And we review the seventh studio album from Colin Malloy and the Decemberists. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, later in the show, we're going to be reviewing the Decemberist new album. I'd like to think we've played some small role in their success. We've had them on as a band. We've had Colin Malloy on solo. And now, on January 20th, the city of Portland, their hometown, is naming it Decemberist Day. That's a very cool city, Jim, but uh, that's going to be later on in the show. First, we've got some music news. Hush now, baby, don't you cry. There's someone down there waiting who's only golden light. Making sure you're always gonna be alright. A loving angel, tender, tough and strong. It's almost time to go meet your mom. That is Garth Brooks with a song called Mom. From his latest album, Jim, Man Against Machine. That album has just gone platinum, which means he is once again the biggest selling artist of all time, biggest selling solo artist of all time in the United States, with 135 million units sold, just beating out his longtime nemesis, Elvis Presley. Elvis loved his mom. He did. And uh, they've been going back and forth for the top spot of best selling solo artist uh, in U.S. history for the last decade or so. It's important to point out that Garth Brooks is not the biggest selling artist of all time. The Beatles still at that mark with 178 million sold. They have 26 multi-platinum certifications for albums and singles from the RIAA. Another caveat here, this certification process only began in 1976, so that would lead one to assume that had the process started sooner, the Beatles and Presley would be further ahead than they are now, that Presley would in fact be the biggest selling solo artist of all time. This is just based on album sales certifications from the RIAA. Nonetheless, Garth has not had a bad couple of decades. He's got six albums that have sold 10 million or more. Presley has only had one. Can you guess what it was? No idea. It's Elvis's Christmas album. I'd have said Blue Hawaii, Greg. <laughs> another interesting news item. The Universal Music Group has filed another one of these lawsuits seeking to protect copyrights owned by its artists. This one is against two companies that distribute 
products in the prison system across the U.S. These two companies sell things like deodorant and toothbrushes and snacks, and they also sell mixtapes. Universal is claiming that some of these mixtapes infringe on recordings by artists like James Brown, Eminem, and Stevie Wonder, and it's seeking $150,000 per allegedly illegally distributed song from this company. Who would think, Greg, who would think that people in prison are stealing music? Shocking. Here's another uh, shocking story about a theft. A punk band called Stereo Fire Empire was playing at a uh, house of blues in New Orleans. One of the members had just seen on Facebook that the gallery of the famous artist George Rodriguez, the guy who does all those blue dog paintings, had just been robbed. Somebody walked in the art gallery and walked out with a painting of one of these blue dogs worth $250,000. So... This punk band gets off stage, and they're hanging out, and they see a painting leaning against the wall. (laughs) They pick it up, and it's that painting. So they walk down the street with this $250,000 painting under their arm to deliver it to the police station. They said, quote, we felt like the gang from Scooby-Doo walking (laughs) with this painting. The, The gallery was very, very happy to get this back, and the culprit who stole the painting is still at large. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song Right Now by the queen of hip-hop soul, Mary J. Blige. It's from her 13th release, The London Sessions, aptly named as it captures Mary's 21-day residency at a London studio where she was surrounded by some of the best young artists on the British soul and club scenes. Talking names like chart phenom Sam Smith, former Sound Opinions guest Emily Sandé, and house duo Disclosure. The result is a fresh and authentic sound for this veteran singer. And Greg, it even made your top 10 list of 2014. I loved it too. It's amazing to consider not just the scope of Mary's 25-year career, but what went on in the background during the making of all that music. She called her 1994 release My Life, and it's been quite a life indeed. Mary's spoken openly about her struggles with drug addiction, with alcoholism, depression, and sexual and domestic abuse dating back to her childhood in the Bronx. Many of the songs on My Life spoke to her abusive relationship with Casey Haley of Jodeci, and 2001's No More Drama was an insistent cry for just that. But as Mary explains, amidst all the heart-wrenching songs are also a lot of moments of joy. 2005's The Breakthrough was inspired by finding love with Kendu Isaacs, her husband of 11 years and her manager now. So a lot of ups, a lot of downs. All of this has been followed closely by the press, by the fans. Mary was happy to get into all of it and give the backstory on the new London Sessions disc during a recent visit to the studio, which I, sadly, was out of town for. I missed it. But here's Greg and Mary J one-on-one. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and we are here with Mary J. Blige. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. New album called The London Sessions. What a record. Uh, we want to Thank talk you. about that extensively. 
a group of uh, London musicians who have been admirers of yours, and you say that you were influenced by what they were doing, but they in turn were influenced by what you were doing. Sam Smith, one of your collaborators on this record, talked about this idea of fearless vulnerability. That is what was he was hearing in your music. It takes a certain amount of courage for an artist to have that fearless vulnerability in the music because you're putting yourself out there for the public to hear sort of, uh, you know, warts and all. Why, why was that always there from the start in your music? Well, because I don't think there's anything else I could have done. You know, given just the type of person I've been since I've been a child, I've been always just vulnerable and, you know, just out there. I've gone through so much from childhood to teenage life to adulthood to the point where, you know, I think I would have been depriving myself if I hadn't spoken. You know, it it was therapy to me to write songs about what was going on. So I don't think I had a choice. I think I'm supposed to do what I'm doing. You understand? Yeah. You had this music in your household growing up, too, at the uh, Obama inaugural, you performed, uh, which is a great honor. And uh, I guess you could have done just about anything. But what was it? It was Bill Withers' Lean on Me that you you, you chose. I remember talking to you about it back then, and you were sort of saying, this is a song that's been part of my life since I can first remember. So that kind of music, soul-bearing music, was in your household, it sounded like, when you were growing up. Ever since I can remember what music sound like, the very first time I heard music, it was soul music. I was four years old. There was this group by the name of Roy Ayers playing a song called Everybody Loves the Sunshine. That's what was playing in my house, and that's the song that followed me and just kind of molded me almost. Sunshine Folks get down in the sunshine And you were also growing up in the birthplace of of hip-hop, New York City. How did that integrate with your listening habits? How did that Mm -hmm. hold up side-by-side with the soul music that you were listening to? Well, as a teenager in New York, that was our culture. That was our new way of speaking. That was our new way of identifying ourselves mm-hmm. <laughs> through hip-hop music. I need money. I used to be a stick-up kid, so I think of all the devious things I did. I used to roll up. This is a hole-up. Ain't nothing funny. Stop smiling. You still don't nothing move but the money. But now I learn to earn because I'm righteous. I feel great, so maybe I might just search for a nine-to-five. Harris one and Rakim and all of those people, they were like conscious rappers that made you want to listen to them because, the, you know, their topics were like, you must learn. And so it wasn't just about the beats and being ignorant. It, they really made us want to listen. If the beats were great in hip hop and the messages were great, that's what I would gravitate towards. And then the soul music at home, I would go and dig up my mother's records or, you know, play Anita Baker, you know, when I was a teenager and, and still play Aretha Franklin, still play, play Shaka Khan, still play Stevie Wonder and just get all of that in me. When did you know that you were going to be a singer no matter what? 
no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> when did I know? Uh, I don't think I knew until it, I knew until it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew I could sing and I knew I was going to be the neighborhood <laughs> singer because mm-hmm. my friends would say Mary sing, you know, all the time. And um, I knew as a little girl I would be the little girl singing in talent shows all the time. But I didn't know it until it actually really, really happened. That debut, though, what's the 411 in 92? You were talking about the way you were able to sort of integrate the hip-hop and the soul, and obviously that's the, the persona you had was so distinctive. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that was you? You know, because people talk about Sean Combs at the time. This was his mm-hmm. debut. And, you know, Andre Harrell. These were, these were really important figures mm-hmm. in urban music at, the, at that time. And they were sort of thought of as these Svengali-type guys. And you were this young lady coming out of New York, how much input did you have into the way they built this fully formed persona came out in that first record? How much of that was you and how much of that was them? Well, 100 percent of my ears hearing what I what I loved and what I wanted was me. 100 mm-hmm. percent of them finding and putting it all together and putting the hip hop music or whatever the keys and putting it together. That was all them. Mm-hmm. But once it was all done, whether I was going to let it go or whether I was going to let it. You know, whether it was gonna it was gonna make the album, that was me. <laughs> thought of an R&B singer at the time, it was like the diva, you know, it was a Whitney Houston kind of model. You weren't that. You could have seen you in the in the neighborhood as opposed to just being this figure on a stage that's kind of inaccessible. Right. You were very accessible. Yeah. Uh, and, and that seemed a very natural outgrowth of the way you wanted to present yourself. I mean, that's who I was. That's that's who I'm, I, I, I am still. Mm-hmm. I was never the, the the girl, the chick in the gown. <laughs> yeah. I was always the girl in the combat boots and the baggy <laughs> pants. And that's just who I was even before I was in the music business. So, mm-hmm. you know, thank God for Puffy seeing that and being able to show people that's what I was instead of trying to make me into something I'm not. Mm-hmm. Well, you, ne- you never seem to fake it. You know, I remember first seeing you perform. I was like, wow, this is like, she's putting it right out there. Mm-hmm. And it was there in the album titles, you know, My Life, No More Drama, Stronger With Each Tear. I mean, these album, album after album where it was like the, a year or two years in Mary J. Blige's life. It almost mm-hmm. seemed like that to the way the fans were able to relate to you. It almost seemed like the relationship you had with your fans was sort of beyond a typical artist-fan relationship. There was something that your fans needed, and you seemed to recognize that because maybe you needed it too. Well, it was um, during the My Life album when we first released the My Life album because that was like a really personal like a letter, mm-hmm. you know, to myself that I needed to write, just a letter, period. And I didn't know that so many people was suffering just like me.
that's when I realized that I was able to say something that people couldn't. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that I had a different relationship with my fans. It was the first time I realized we even had a relationship. Hmm. And then from that point on, we've been speaking to each other <laughs> through music. You know, Mary, Mary, say what I can't say. Mary, that's right. Mary, say that, you know. <laughs> was it difficult for you? I've seen you perform and I, I've talked to other people who have seen you perform over the years. There never seemed to be sort of like, you know, a phoning it in type moment. Like, you know, she's living through this, these words again up there on stage. It was kind of like this emotionally wrenching kind of experience. And was there ever a point where you said, you know, I just don't want to don't want to live through this over and over again on stage? hard to listen to the My Life album at one time. It was hard to listen to it and perform the songs. It's a different thing because I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. So I don't mind letting it go for them. I don't mind each and every time they come see me. I don't mind. We need this Mm -hmm. because God knows what you guys are going through. God knows what I'm going through. This is therapy for us. No more drama is we don't know what's going to happen, but we know we need it at the moment. Is there one song from this era that you have to do that you feel like kind of sums it up? Yeah, is essential? It, it, it would be no more drama because I'm trying to just consistently stare from, you know, I cannot, you know, drama is drama. It's going to always be drama. It's going to be always be pain. It's going to always be suffering. Mm-hmm. And my whole thing is how do I stay away from it? You know, the last three years of my life have been drama. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. been all over the news. It's been this, it's been that, it's been this. But I'm still saying no more. And I'm going to keep fighting to keep my identity and to stay strong, you know? So it would be no more drama forever <laughs> yeah. if, I, if I can help it. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Mary J. Blige talks candidly about American Idol, Amy Winehouse, and more. Plus, the Decemberists proclaim, what a terrible world, what a beautiful world. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And our guest this week is the incredible Mary J. Blige. She's been dubbed the queen of hip-hop soul. But this, I think, has more to do with her approach to a song than the style of the music itself. Mary J.'s vocal sound has always been more about emotion and authenticity than technical perfection. There's a gospel influence in there. She's singing in the moment. But we're living in an era of manufactured pop where perfection is more important than emotional investment. During Greg's recent conversation with Mary, he asked her how she fights against that trend. I know I wasn't the greatest singer in the world, so I wasn't trying to hit every note, and Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to riff every riff. I was just trying to get things out of me and say what I needed to say. You know, if I start thinking and studying what riff I'm going to do, I'll lose the organicness of what what I'm trying to say. I'll lose the whole thing. So I I never thought, you know, I'm just going to sing perfect because I don't I'm not pitch perfect and I can't sing perfect. All I can do is sing. I remember a few years ago at the height of its success, American Idol had you on as a as a mentor mentor. Mm -hmm. And you were sort of inside the belly of the beast at that time, you know, and I'm wondering some of the stuff that you just said about emotion and stuff. Do you mm-hmm. think that resonated at all? Because it just seemed like that show had nothing to do with what you were just talking about in a lot of ways. They were sort of extolling, let's find the perfect technique as opposed to the people who can really get inside of a song. Well, that's what I was telling them to do. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. was saying, whatever you feel, whatever you're dealing with, good, bad, whatever it is, express that through your song. Don't worry about hitting the note. It'll come, you know, even if you make the mistake, people will feel it. It won't even, he will, no one will care because they will feel where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. But people are just all about being a perfect singer. And I understand that, you know, but right. it's not for everyone. Not if you have something to say. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. We're talking with Mary J. Blige. Here you are, I guess it was late last year, with Disclosure. Mm-hmm. And you do a remix of one of their songs. Mm-hmm. What was it about it that drew you in? Because you're mm-hmm. picky. You don't just mm-hmm. do everybody, anybody's material. Right. It was the nostalgia of the club music that I heard when I was a kid growing up. I was too young to go clubbing, but... On the radio stations, they would have Friday night, late night, you know, and I would listen to all the club music as a kid. What I remember is the feeling, and mm. that's what Disclosure gave me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know how they know what they knew, they know and how they have so much knowledge of the deep house feeling, 
they weren't even born. They know their stuff. That's what made me yeah. gravitate. In <laughs> short, they know what they were, they know their stuff. You know, here you are, twenty years in, and we're finding out new things about about you as an artist mm-hmm. and, the, and the kind of things you're you're interested in, which is fantastic. And then in, in June, you pair up with Sam Smith, and and mm-hmm. and, and you do the version of "Stay with Me," um, which mm-hmm. was a, a huge viral phenomenon. People were looking at that and listening to that all all around the world. Why am I so emotional? This is not a good look, gain some self-control And deep down I know this never works But you can lay with me so it doesn't hurt Oh, won't you stay with me? Cause you're When I first heard that song, I said, oh, my God, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is incredible. I haven't heard anything that good in a very long time. Anything that felt so warm, so whole, so nurturing. So it was like medicine. It was like food. It was mm-hmm. like it was just feeding the soul. It was a gift when it came to me to be on. It was like, Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mean to tell me I could be on this song with this guy? So between the disclosure track and working with Sam Smith, when did the idea of, okay, let's do this London Sessions album come about? Well, the idea came from the FEU remix. They released it in London, and mm-hmm. it just exploded. And then they released it over here in, um, in the States, and then it started doing well over here. Then we started doing shows together, and the response, you know, this is a whole nother audience. These are young kids screaming, going crazy when I walk out on stage mm-hmm. saying F for you, the remix. So the whole idea was to do an EP with Disclosure. And um, during that time, I was um, out of my, my deal with Interscope. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to Steve Barnett about um, doing the EP with Disclosure. And he said, Mary, that's a, that's a great idea. But, you know, I think you're more than just club music. He said, so why don't we just send you to London have you worked not only with Disclosure, but have you write with Sam Smith, Emily Sandy, Naughty Boy, mm-hmm. Jimmy Napes, 
the London talent that's out there, the up and coming cutting edge London talent and call the album the London Sessions. So it was Steve Barnett's idea. Mm-hmm. That's where it all came from. <laughs> it took a whole damn year to repair my body. It took a whole damn year. It took a whole damn year to repair my body. It's been a bad five years. Gonna take a long, long year for me to trust somebody. Gonna take a long, long year. Gonna take a long, long year for me to touch somebody. It's been a bad five years. When I went there in July, I kind of knew what I wanted, which is a change. Mm-hmm. I didn't want anything like what I had ever done before anything so we had 10 days to write songs right right so in, in those 10 days we'll have to be at the studio at 12 noon write you know two or three songs reference them leave the studio maybe by six seven that night because they didn't do all that hanging out in the studio all night long over there mm-hmm. we wrote songs we wrote the songs in 10 days and then we had to record the songs in 10 days and i had one day of vocal rest mm-hmm. so in all in the, the 21 days i think it was 21 days everything was just coming together like we were just getting everything we needed there, there was like maybe one hiccup when I first got there but um, after that we were on a roll I mean that's extraordinary they don't make them like that anymore as you well know and I'm sure what mm-hmm. you're saying was unique in your experience as well that you had never done a record that seemed quite that seat of the pants you know in terms of we're just yeah. going to go in there and let and let's see what happens um, yeah was it was it nerve-wracking at all you know, it wasn't because I had so, I was so optimistic about the whole thing. I wanted, and everyone else was too. You know, Sam really wanted it to happen. We were really in the studio together. We were every, really working together, and everybody just really wanted it to come together, and mm-hmm. it did. And um, you know, there's a documentary attached to this where you can you see the whole process. Like we were really. Well, this sounds like how some of your heroes would have made their records in the 60s and 70s. You know, it's very much of head arrangements and let's get in there and and feel the moment. Tell me tell me what the first day was like. Who who did you work with that first day? Mm -hmm. What did did it go like? The first day was with Jimmy Napes. And um, we began to write a song that the song didn't make it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're cool with that. But um, it was beautiful. You know, even though the song didn't make it and, you know, it was, you know, we didn't love it. It was, the writing process was great. We wrote the song, recorded the, the reference vocal, listened back to it and said, mm, nah. Yeah. And, and then we went back to the piano and that's when we wrote Worth My Time, which is the last song on the album. I won't give up, make it worth my time. We've been in it so long, we forgot The album begins with Therapy, which is a mm-hmm. great song. I think that's a Sam Smith co-write, right? Yes. And it was just like, wow, this is like right between the eyes, kind of like you're coming, you're coming mm-hmm. out, and it's uh, it's it's got this. I'm almost thinking it like a, there's an almost a doo-wop feel, right? In some of the vocals, it's old school, but yet it feels very very much now. It's like one of those songs where you listen to that song, and you go, I hope Mary's okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Spend the rest of my days unhappy 
while but I spend the rest of this year alone when I go therapy when I can go therapy when I can go therapy two times a day everybody needs some sort of therapy whatever that means it doesn't mean for me it's not sitting in front of a doctor on a chair which is mm-hmm. okay you know but for me, it could just be listening to some great music. It could be exercising, going for yeah. a good run, or shopping for shoes, you know? Mm. <laughs> it's therapeutic. <laughs> it's a hardcore, you know, like you said, it hit you right between the eyes. But a lot of people need that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a wonderful piece of music. Um, in the middle of the creative process, especially when you're at these low points in your life personally, are you able to create at that moment, or do you need some distance in order to write about it and get a great song out of it? I think you have to come through or you have to almost be out of the low point to even be able to articulate it in a song. Because while you're in it, you just you just in it. You're laying on the ground. You're (laughs) almost dead. So when that moment when you say get up, pick yourself up and you start walking, that's when you can start writing. Music has been saving my life since I was a kid. Mm hmm. That's all I really had. I would sing songs when I was a little kid just to feel better. Sing, 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 sing so I could feel like I had wings. So I like what I see when I'm looking at me when I'm walking past the mirror. Don't stress through the night at a time in my life. Ain't worry about if you feel it. Got my head on straight. I got my vibe right. I ain't gonna let you kill it. See, I won't change You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. We're talking with Mary J. Blige. I'm sure you don't take it for granted. It's certainly stunning to me that you've maintained this, you know, you've been able to maintain a consistently high level for over 20 years. I think it's particularly difficult, though, for a woman artist in in this day and age because the whole culture is skewing younger and younger all the time. Mm -hmm. It seems like if you're 23, if you're Sam Smith or Amy Winehouse's age as she was 10 years ago, that's Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's your peak of your career and you're... If you can get to 30, you're, you're really, you've done an incredible thing. And if you maintain, are able to remain relevant after that, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. Yes. How, how, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's doing this, you know, wants to look into this as a career uh, that has enabled you to sort of sustain relevance for, for as long as you have? Um, be yourself, no matter how hard it is. No ma- do, do not be swayed into being what the hot thing is because the hot thing is a million things that look exactly alike sound exactly alike but you you are different be different be you look at you too Mm -hmm. (laughs) they've been you too forever you know because bono is bono forever (laughs) and he doesn't care what you think about him and elton john the same thing he elton john doesn't care what you think he's elton john and that's why they're here they didn't follow the hottest thing that was coming it's easier said than done, I think, in some ways. You know, don't listen to what other people say. Yes. But as an artist, you're constantly inundated with that. And as social media, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to hear, you hear every little nitpick that everybody in the whole planet has if you want to make yourself accessible to that sort of thing. Right. How do you tune out the people who are telling you what they think you should be? It's so much of it that if you don't know who you are, you are going to be, they're going to destroy you because everyone's a critic. Social media has made everyone and their mother a critic. <laughs> so if you don't know who you are and if everybody's opinion matters to you and it bothers you and oh, they hurt my feelings, 
you're finished. Mm -hmm. I understand that when you were in London during this three-week period, you made a point of meeting Amy Winehouse's father. Mm -hmm. Why was that important to you to do that? Well, because before Amy died, I've been a fan and I've been trying to get to her. I've been trying to get to her to tell her how much I love her, tell her how much I'm a fan. And I can't go to London and be inspired by Amy Amy Winehouse, someone who I love, and not get the opportunity to find her father and tell him how amazing his daughter was and even maybe speak to Amy through him if I could, you know, Mm -hmm. and I actually got a chance to do that. Turns out Amy was not going through so much hell that we thought she was. The father says she was very uh, like a like a happy person, like a jokey person. I I didn't I I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. But I felt like it was something I had to do Mm -hmm. because I I just hate the fact that she just left so soon. I hate the fact that what happened to her happened. And Mm -hmm. in my life, I've been dealing with drugs and alcohol at some point, you know, before in my life. Mm -hmm. But I got to a point where I wanted to live. And that's why I wanted to reach out to Amy when she was living, because I just wanted to share with her what, you know, where where I'm at right now and, and wanted her to come with me and be a part of choosing life. But I couldn't get to her. It was too late. There must have been something that was on your mind. Like if I had only been able to speak to her, maybe I could have, you know, yeah. because it's difficult. How did you, you know, how did you reach that clarity in your own life if you wouldn't, wouldn't mind sharing? Because I think other mm-hmm. artists, you know, would benefit from hearing that. Being that close to death, like slipping away, dying, but not wanting to die and just like making a choice right there. Just mm-hmm. I, I don't want to die, but you're in it. You're high, <laughs> mm-hmm. whatever you are, drug, you, you know, you're hung over from the night before you're in it and you're slipping away and you say, I don't, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. In terms of future goals for you, I know you've done a lot of acting and I know this was on the table for a while, but there was supposedly some, you were connected with a Nina Simone movie for a while. Mm-hmm. Is that anywhere in the, in the future or not? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's too bad. It is too bad. It really was a big loss. I, I think there was a connection there that you felt with her in terms of the type of personality she was. And she was another outspoken person who, who mm-hmm. really spoke her feelings in, in, in the music. And you connected with her in that way. I could totally relate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She reminded me of me a lot. We have been talking to Mary J. Blige. It's been a real honor to have you in, Mary. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. We've got video of Greg's conversation with Mary J. Blige up at soundopinions.org, and we want to hear from you. What is your favorite Mary J. Blige album or performance? And what other artists should take inspiration from the Brits? Share your opinions on the air at 888-859-1800. Coming up, the Decemberists are back with album number seven, and I talk about a song I can't live without. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
but um, bring to you quick, won't pause like a comma, won't stall on you when it's time to put it on you, won't call on another chick from calling on you, won't trip on you, I don't bring the drama, I won't dip out when it's trauma, I'm holding on mama. Hold up, wait a minute. We've been through the downs up, but stayed in it. So glad that I got you, that I got you. So glad that I got you, that I got you. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a song called Make You Better by the Decemberists from their new album, What a Terrible World, What a Beautiful World. Greg, the Decemberists have been one of the most important bands, I think, of the last decade and a half. Colin Malloy was a former theater major and an English major from Montana who moved to Portland and put this band together in the early 2000s. They made their debut in the indie ranks in 2002, eventually were signed to Capitol Records, and we haven't heard from them in a while. 2011 was the last album, The King is Dead, and it debuted at number one on the Billboard album chart. I think after Arcade Fire, the Decemberists probably are the most successful band to rise from the indie rock ranks of the late 90s, early 2000s into almost an arena-level band. They've done interesting things playing with orchestras in big theater spaces across the country. They toured quite a bit. They've been gone, though, for four years. Colin Malloy, the band leader, very literate fellow, spent part of that time writing a trilogy of children's fantasy books. Now they're back, and they're back in a big way with this album. Let's play a track from it. We will come back and give our opinions. This is Cavalry Captain by the Decemberists from What a Terrible World, What a Beautiful World on Sound Opinions. I am the Cavalry Captain. Shine, shine your eyes Looking lost, looking 
That is Cavalry Captain from The Decemberists, the new album, What a Terrible World, What a Beautiful World, their seventh studio album. The horns on that track indicating (laughs) where this record is heading. It's a little more more stylistically diverse, especially since uh, The King is Dead was this kind of rustic-flavored record that was recorded in in one space in a period of a few weeks. This record was recorded over a, a much longer period of time, and I think it allowed the band to experiment a little bit more with a lot of different pop styles. You know, you got that guitar jangle on the wrong year. You've got that Appalachian country folk feel on uh, Carolina Low, the horns on the Cavalry Captain that we just played. They've never quite done an album like this in terms of the pop diversity, and uh, they set the listener up on that very first track. The singer addresses his audience, <laughs> and Colin Malloy is basically saying, if you're expecting more of the same, we're not going to give it to we you. We had to change yes, some. Yes, we had says. to change some. You know, he's being very some. You know, change all that indulgent much, to think. his audience. Right. You're still getting the smart... Uh, lyrics. I mean, there are more four-syllable words in uh, Colin <laughs> Malloy's lyrics than probably any other songwriter working today. Well, can you think of anybody else in a pop song <laughs> who's ever referenced Tennyson's The Light Brigade the well, way Malloy just did just in that song? Casually throws his stuff out there, yeah. you know. Like, but it, it works within the context of these uh, great melodies that he's writing. I probably would have thrown out maybe two of the songs here instead of fourteen, maybe a dozen. But, you know, you're quibbling here. I mean, the guy's a great songwriter. The band is in top form, showing its range. The nice touch here is those harmony vocals. He brings in uh, Rachel Flotard and Kelly Hogan to sing these harmonies that give it a nice pop feel. Yeah. So overall, another fine album from the Decembrists. I'm going to give it a buy it. I love this record, Greg. I was I was fearing that you may not like it because, look, there are a lot of hurdles that people have to get over. If you're going to sit there and say, you know, Malloy always says, as he said on Sound Opinions, you know, I'm influenced by Fairport Convention and Pentangle with mm-hmm. a little bit of the Smiths. Look, I think there's just as much of Jethro Tull's songs from the wood and you know, ELP's Lucky Man, right, as there is that. But I like progressive rock. I'm a history geek. I'm an English professor, for God's sake. I love everything this guy does. But even if I put on my cynical punk rock glasses, I think the way that he makes fun of himself in a song like The Singer Addresses the Audience, you know, where he's talking about doing a commercial for Axe Shampoo. But with fame came a mounting claim for the evermore. You know, so when your bridal processional is a televised confessional to the benefits of Axe Shampoo, you know we did it. For you. There's a lot of of jovial, lighthearted. We we are being ambitious, but we're not being pretentious to this. And I, I disagree with you. I wouldn't cut a single track from it. I love every song on this album. I think this is the first masterpiece of 2015, and I give well, it a very enthusiastic buy it as well. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away, island lost the sea. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded you remember we were shipwrecked together? As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island to play a track we cannot live without. Uh, Jim, it's your turn this week. Greg, I've been thinking about a band from the early 90s, mid-90s called Ooey. 
that's uh, spelled U-I, but pronounced U-I, that was part of that scene. In the UK, we had Stereolab doing that sort of minimalist, trance-inducing electronic music. In Chicago, we had Tortoise doing what they called post-rock, or what people called post-rock. And U-I kind of split the difference between Tortoise and Stereolab with you know a lot of electronics, but also two bass guitars and banjo and tuba, weird instruments, De- constructing music and kind of putting it back together in odd ways. I am going to go for a triple header here, okay? I like the band Ui. I love the band Stereo Lab. And there's this guy, Brian Eno. It's a new, oh, I heard about him. It's a new year. I figured I could mention him at least once without getting too much guff. Ui and Stereo Lab collaborated in 1998 on a joint EP called Fires, which was several versions of the Brian Eno song from Another Green World, St. Elmo's Fire. Now, this is one of my favorite Eno songs of all time. It's about the phenomenon of lightning zipping between the masts of a sailing ship in the (laughs) 1800s, okay? And, you know, famously, Eno turned to Robert Fripp when they recorded the song and said, I want you to make the sound of that phenomenon, and there's this wonderful guitar solo. So, Ui collaborated with Stereo Lab. There's several versions of the song, and they each kind of deconstruct it. Ui Lab takes it apart, puts it back together with different electronics. The reason I also thought of Ui uh, recently is one of its members went on to considerable fame in our field of rock criticism. Sasha Frere Jones had been the New Yorker's rock critic since 2004. He just stepped down to take another post. But, uh, you know, he had his musical bona fides in a really interesting band before deigning to step down to our world. Here is Ui Lab, Ui plus Stereo Lab, with St. Elmo's Fire on Sound Opinions. Brown eyes and
That is Ooey Lab. Ooey plus Stereo Lab covering St. Elmo's Fire by the great Brian Eno. My pick this week for the Desert Island Jukebox. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to play some great songs from strange musical bedfellows. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say. Mary Gaffney recorded Mary J. Blige. I am forever jealous of you that I had to miss that. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and our intern is Alex Claiborne. opinions everyone's a critic so give us a call on our hotline 888-859-1800 new messages hi my name's Stephen. i'm calling from sydney australia I've been really enjoying the episodes and people's favorite albums of the year. And um, mine is an Australian album, unsurprisingly. It's called Typical System by a band called Total Control. They're a post-punk, kind of crap rock, electronic, really rather odd band from Melbourne. And they made an absolutely brilliant album. An amazing album, and uh, really, uh, it's a shame that it's not more what can be heard. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. Hi, this is Hewitt calling from Brooklyn. Calling you out, Scott, gave him a hard time for choosing All About That Bass for his mixtape. Totally awesome doo-wop, modern beats, mashup. It's great. And it's not too different from B.V. Brown, which was on your Guilty Pleasures list a few years back, and which I love. It seems like if something is a smash hit, not cool enough for you. But if it's under the radar, it gets the thumbs up. Love the show. Keep it up. Thanks, guys. Hi, it's Terry in Oak Park, Illinois. I was just uh, hoping that you'll be able to note that the sad passing of uh, John Fry, the founder of Arden Studios in Memphis, he died at age 69. Uh, John Fry was the one who taught the art of recording to, to Chris Bell, who, along with Alice Chilton, founded Big Star. Big Star.
huge force in music coming out of Memphis. I can just tell a lot of people are, are still very sad that we've lost John Fry of Arden Studios. Hi, this is Rick in Morrisville, North Carolina. Uh, one of the people we lost in 2014 that you forgot to mention was Joe Cocker. He had a one-of-a-kind voice and a unique ability to not only cover a song but reinterpret it and often do it so well that he pretty much took ownership of the song. But I think maybe a more important and less obvious reason to celebrate Joe was uh, brought up by one of the singers interviewed in the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom when she mentioned that uh, if it wasn't for the British rock bands of the 60s, they would have starved. And she particularly cited Joe Cocker and the Rolling Stones. In honor of Joe's passing, I'd like to nominate uh, my favorite Cocker song to your Desert Island jukebox, which would be Woman to Woman, uh, one of the funkiest songs I know. And I know you guys like funky music, and it certainly features background singers prominently. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.